the event horizon is comprised of multiple telescopes around the world, and each gets a single image of the black hole. And we can't really get a sense of this because our eyes don't work this way. So yeah, while you might end up with a really simple image at the end, which is, you know, a megabyte, to get to that point has reduced petabytes of data. You've taken huge amounts of cleaning each step to remove the Merck from what is the pristine image we think is there with only just a few points of view. So you're having to use very clever mathematical techniques to fill in the dots. All of it to say is near miraculous. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to the FOIL podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Hey, Alan Duffy, welcome to The Foil. Thanks so much for being with us today. Tell me, what inspired you to become an astronomer? Well, I, I grew up in uh, Northern Ireland, which maybe, I don't know how obvious that is from my, my accent these days, but, uh, and that is a, a very undeveloped, <laughs> in, a, in an urban sense, uh, country. There's lots of so-called dark sites, so where there, there's limited light pollution, you get pristine views of the night sky. And even, you know, my earliest memories are, you know, face against the car window, looking at these stars as we would drive through from, from country towns. But really, I mean, that became my fascination with the night sky and, and, and the idea of the stars and, and in particular, the darkness. I was always fascinated as to why there were areas without stars. Was it because there just wasn't any stars? Was there something blocking the light? Uh, or, or indeed, was there something that was just fundamentally dark and invisible? And it turns out it's, it's actually all three. <laughs> But, but really for me, the point about the astronomer as a role, as a profession, I, I didn't know anyone. In fact, at that point, there was no one in my family had, had actually gone to university. So for me, the key was reading uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, Brief History of Time as a precocious teenager and thinking I understood it. And I could, I've reread it since, and I can assure you I understood very little of it. Um, but in, in that book, Stephen Hawking talks about cosmology, dark matter, black holes, and in particular, the idea that there was such a profession as a cosmologist, as an astronomer, that you could be paid to think about the biggest questions in our universe, literally. Wow. So that was it. That was the moment when I realized there was an actual role. And once I saw it, then I could try to be it. Awesome. And I mean, do you then think about yourself more as an astronomer or a cosmologist? What are the differences between these things and, you know, which one are you? Okay, now we begin to really get into a vexatious topic. So uh, technically a cosmologist, uh, we're all astronomers, I think. I, I personally would describe us all as astronomers. Whether we're astronomers or astrophysicists is neither here nor there. I, it, it, you know, astronomer is the, is the friendly term, I think, that might encourage, you know, a member of the public to chat with us. And, and just as, a, as an explanation of this. If I'm in a plane and I'm really tired and the person beside me asks me what job I do and I don't want to speak any more about it, I say I'm an astrophysicist or I say I'm a cosmologist and that just closes down the conversation. And if I say I'm an astronomer, then it's, you know, that's it for the next two hours, which is wonderful if, you, if you're you know, not jet lagged. The cosmologist as a subset of astronomer slash astrophysicist concerns, we, we concern ourselves with the, the biggest scales of the universe. Imagine you zoom out from the Earth, the solar system, you know, vanishes from view. We see that we're just one star around, indeed, uh, amongst hundreds of billions that form our, our Milky Way galaxy. We continue to zoom out until the galaxy itself becomes nothing more than a point of light. And then we see there are lights scattered all across this universe. Of course, now we're, we're seeing uh, hundreds of billions of galaxies at that scale. We talk about cosmology, where we worry about the curvature of the universe. We worry about its bulk. Uh, constituents, the dark matter primarily, as well as dark energy. So it's on those scales that cosmology uh, dominates. But of course, there's no, there's no clean separation. You can't understand the nature of the universe on the largest scales without also understanding the smallest. And in, in that way, the impact that even dust grains floating around distant stars and, and changing the color of their light impacts your observations. And what you then try to infer about the bigger underlying questions of the universe. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a wonderful topic because you get to think about the biggest scales, but you also have to worry about the most 
fine-grained, smallest details, which could otherwise completely throw out your conclusions. So that that's why I like to call myself a cosmologist. But these days, to be honest, I, I just feel like I'm, um, uh, yeah, more more of a. I was about to say charlatan because I really think that um, the more I've I've worked in this field, the more I realize I just know so little. <laughs> no. I was so much more confident about my cosmology experience and and credentials when I knew nothing about the field. And the more I've I've learned over these decades working in it, the more I realize I, I really know nothing. That's a really beautiful uh, thing to say and also a gorgeous image of you as a child. And I think so many of us do relate to that, um, particularly in Australia where there's so many, you know, the open spaces and many of us have stared up at the stars and wondered what it is all about. Uh, and I'm really interested. Could you explain to me what is dark matter? Yeah, so I've used this, this term a, a couple of times already, and, and uh, I, I probably should have explained some of that and not taken yeah. it as read. Mm-hmm. So dark matter, uh, and this is going to be a short explanation because we, we don't know much about it. That's, that's the cool bit about it. Um, dark matter is a new uh, kind of stuff in the universe that outweighs everything we can see uh, put together five times over. It is the vast majority of the stuff in, in our universe. We can see its effects on visible material, the stars and gas pulled by the gravity of this unseen partner. And that's the challenge. It is fundamentally invisible. If it be, As a result of its gravity, we can tell that it's there. But because it doesn't shine or absorb light, it's extremely hard to detect. It also has the property that then behaves like a ghost. So it's able to travel through solid matter as if it were, you know, nothing. So it's, it travels through us, the walls, even the entire earth without collision. So an invisible uh, substance traveling through the walls, well, that, that does sound like a ghost. And if it weren't for the fact that there's so much of it, uh, that its gravity is just incredibly apparent. You quite literally see stars spinning around this uh, uh, otherwise completely invisible object uh, that, that we, we wouldn't be so confident. But we're, we've now measured how much there is. We've measured where it is. Uh, we just don't know what it is. I'm really keen to know, because in the world of data and statistics, we talk about what we know as a contingent on what we expect. So when we say that you know, we know that there's dark matter there. It seems like that's sort of contingent on what we expect. We've got a model, if you like, for the universe. Mm. And you, this model, which is, you know, Einstein's theory of general relativity, which tells us about what we should expect for these things to do. And what we see doesn't match what we expect. Something's mm-hmm. wrong. The dark matter hypothesis is that there's stuff there. Is there any other hypothesis that we could explore? Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got, uh, so we have the observation and we have what our prediction is. Our prediction, of course, as you say, is based on our theory of gravity in this in this instance of, of Einstein's GR. Certainly, if you take I, if you take the theory as uh, read, then it does imply there's just we can see that there's extra gravity, and assuming Einstein's GR, that implies there's extra mass. There's this extra stuff. Uh, it could be that the theory is incorrect or incomplete. And instead, what we're seeing from the extra gravity is just uh, a new law of gravity based on the stuff that we can see. And, and you know, there that, that was a very popular idea. This is called modified Newtonian dynamics. It was a, it was a popular idea for, for a couple of decades, but um, it's uh, now completely been uh, ruled out. We've, we've been able to see instances where... Um, the gravity from the dark matter is clearly apparent even when there is no visible material effectively. So, so, you know, it's not a matter of boosting the gravity of what we can see. It's just, there's just nothing there to be boosted. And yet we still see this dark matter hanging around as a, as its own separate component of the universe. So we've been able to, to do some extraordinary tests on this. Um, but I think that as a more fundamental idea, uh, going in and a particular data size, when you when you when you make a prediction and you're testing this against the observables, the, the data sets, it could be very difficult to disentangle a bad uh, model, a bad uh, uh, 
uh, idea that you have as a hypothesis or even a more, more you know, um, involved uh, model and the data. And it can be quite a fraught process to disentangle which is causing the, the, the issues. You really need to start to have multiple lines of evidence uh, to, to separate the two. If you only had one single observable, if you had one single you know, A-B test, you would not be able to understand if it was your your model or if it was a particular missing assumption or ingredient within that model that was causing the issues. So that speaks to the imperative of a well-designed uh, process of investigation where, uh, to use the parlance of physics, you take orthogonal uh, lines of inquiry. So you're really trying to constrain as best as possible your model and your uh, data that you're testing. But it can be hard. It's 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 hard when you've actually got physics to tell you literally what is an orthogonal observation. And by that, I mean, what line of inquiry has uncoupled to the other existing data sets. So if you could plan a new experiment, how could you make it as independent as and as revealing as possible versus all of the other existing experiments? And that can be fraught in physics. Uh, and it can be particularly challenging if it's a uh, from a data science perspective, although there are, are, you know, of course, ways to do this, a PCA would, you know, principal component analysis will begin to tell you orthogonal uh, kinds of of parameters, at least, so you can get a bit of a handle in a, in a data sense about where to go on this. But I think the best way to approach these problems is having a well-motivated model, at least internally, and ideally something you've been able to explain to others, because that's always a good fact-checking moment. Uh, and then to go from there in the design of your your uh, experiment, if it's cosmology or if it's consumer behavior testing. As you're explaining this, I am visualizing the data sets and I'm trying to get a handle on how much data you're talking about hmm. uh, as you are working uh, in this space. Can you talk a bit about that? How much data and what sort of data are you using? Yeah, so this this is one of the fun things of being an astronomer. Our data is a uh, very uh, heterogeneous, to use the the parlance, right? It is all sorts. We go from um, images. In fact, one of my students right now, uh, Renee Key, is working on uh, an image of the Large Magellanic Cloud, a beautiful uh, object you can see with the naked eye here in Australia. Uh, if you go to a dark side, it lies just below the galaxy. It is our one of our closest uh, uh, galactic neighbors. We stared at that for five nights uh, with a, a ginormous telescope in Chile, the deck cam. And uh, there is about 4 million stars within the frame of that telescope, 4 million dots of points of light. And every 20 seconds, we took an image. So now you have over five consecutive nights 20 second samplings, 4 million stars, and they are changing wildly. There's crazy stuff happening. We've, we're pretty sure we've seen cosmic rays rip through our detector and trigger weird things. You know. So this data set is a mess, and she is just bravely wade, wading through the, the analysis of that, trying to clean the data, trying to understand all of the, the idiosyncrasies of it. So that's one project. Another bit of a, a, a work we, with uh, Grace Lawrence and Adam Using, two other students, is a simulated universe. So we ran the, uh, essentially from just after the Big Bang to the present day on a supercomputer, throwing in all of the things we think make up our universe, dark energy, dark matter, and uh, the barriers, the atoms that you and I and the stars are made of, along with the laws such that we think we understand. So gravity, we, we think we understand very well. How stars form, we understand very much less. <laughs> and in that way, we end up with a Milky Way galaxy at the present day on the supercomputer, or at least we end up with an analog and in detail it differs. And that's fascinating because that's what reveals what's missing in our model or, or perhaps ingredients. That data set is comprised of billions of individual particles, each with a position and a mass representing a pocket of stuff uh, that's as you zoom out, looks like the Milky Way. It has many other properties. And now we're talking about using uh, data tools to interrogate these, these data sets on our, on our supercomputer, Swimmer and Ozstar, and trying to understand how to uh, 
combine individual, either discrete samples in time, like the telescope observations, or um, to combine these discrete pockets of information to then reveal the broader picture of the galaxy for the latter project. And they're very similar general tools or, or, or techniques one can use. Uh, astronomers, we really become a jack of all trades in that regard. The specifics of the data are important, but pretty quickly you clean up the data to such a point that you can use your general toolkit. So it's actually quite common to see people move from field to field in astronomy because once you've retooled a very specific bit of knowledge to make use of either the observational data, the simulated data or whatever, um, you're, you're just experience of building models and testing models and statistics just kicks in and, and, um, to, to be crude with the data, a chi-squared test works equally well. If it's a light curve or if it's a spinning galaxy, it doesn't really matter from the statistical point of view. And that's, that's the reason why I think we've been able to make such success in astronomy is because we've got a, a pretty solid foundation of statistics and mathematics behind each of our specialist domain expertise. And uh, I, I think that's, if I could give advice to anyone about becoming an astronomer, getting into this field, uh, you could never know enough stats, quite frankly. Uh, you always find more uses of it. Um, and the rest of it is is a, a little bit of specialism about it. Awesome. Actually, that puts me in mind of another project that was super popular. It was all throughout the media a little while ago, not long ago now, actually, where you know we learned that we as, uh, we, as human beings, actually managed to recently take a photo of a black hole. Oh, yeah. And um, what I understood was that, I mean, you know, obviously it's a frightfully difficult thing to take a photo of a black hole. Like for one thing, you know, it's very difficult to see a black hole given, yeah, it's, you know, it's what it actually famously is. Famously defined as being <laughs> invisible, yes. <laughs> How did they take a photo of this black hole? And, and, you know, like what was the role of data and algorithms in, you know, in actually doing that? Yeah, so th this is one of the all-time uh, great moments, I think, of modern science. It's, it's the, the, it's, I, I termed it the impossible picture. This is a, a black hole in one of our, um, closest galaxies, uh, just a supermassive black hole effect. So, so, uh, uh, from memory, a few billion times the mass of our sun, uh, an object about the side, the black bit of the black hole, which is where the gravity is so strong, not even light can escape. So it's not a formal surface, it's just a hole, right? It's just, you, you fall through that, you keep falling into it. Uh, and it's about the extent of our solar system. To see this object in this distant galaxy required uh, two things. One was to have uh, enough material swirling around the gravitational plug hole of that black hole at incredible speeds, about a third the speed of light itself. They... Uh, material within those, that, that swirling, uh, what's called an accretion disk. So that swirling material was rubbing against one another at incredible speeds. So if you rub your hands, they, they get warmer. Now imagine rubbing your hands a third the speed of light. They're going to get pretty, pretty hot. In fact, they glow, uh, uh, white hot. Um, this is, this is what is known as a quasar. It's some of the brightest objects in the, in the universe, ironically, are feeding black holes because of this phenomenon. But this particular instance, we had materials swirling around, but we needed to um, zoom in, so to speak, on this in impossibly small object. When you, when you consider how many uh, millions of light years away it is, something the size of our solar system is, you know, is beyond tiny. We required, in fact, a telescope that was the size of the entire Earth. Uh, now our budgets don't stretch to making such a telescope, but instead what we can do are, is place telescopes across the surface of the earth and combine them on a supercomputer to act as if they were one telescope. This is called the Event Horizon Telescope. This was an audacious undertaking. It was uh, required vast amounts of data, petabytes worth of data, uh, to be captured individually, to then be spliced together on a supercomputer, to have the most extraordinary level of, of control of that data and merging of the data uh, to eventually reveal this, this, uh, this impossible picture. And sure enough, it was, yeah, it's one of the most harrowing 
images, I think, because you actually are looking at this glowing red um, uh, swirl of material around a starkly black hole. And it's, and the blackness is the point at which the universe, the laws of physics, such as we know them, break down. Space and time ends in the center of that image. <laughs> it's, not, it's not black because it's got black paint. I mean, it's black because that's the end of everything. Uh, and I just, to my mind, is, is uh, one of the most extraordinary images, but it could not have been done without the most extraordinary level of technical and, and uh, capability as well as just raw data storage and supercompute time. This is a, a massive undertaking uh, and it could not have been done even just a few years earlier. I think we're, we really are at this point now in, in astronomy where our fate and, and discoveries and even understanding of our, our very universe is intimately tied to data science and to supercompute capability in particular. Yeah, that's, that's, it was such a fascinating story to follow. Um, and obviously there was so much celebration over it. It was a terrific image that came out at the end of it. It looks just like, you know, the, the accretion disc that you see, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the movie Interstellar, you know, as they're approaching yeah, yeah, this yeah. massive black hole and, and it, you know, it's, oh my gosh, look, there it is. It's beautiful. Um, there's so much data, as you said, petabytes of data, you know, documentaries talk about like, you know, needing to shuttle around like the massive hard drives full of data to get it analyzed and whatnot. Um, yeah. the, the image that they get back though, you know, if you were just take to take a super naive look at that data, um, what I understood was that, you know, before processing, it's quite blurry. You look at it and it's a, well, it's, it's a blob or, you know, it's a, it's a fuzzy sort of mass of, of not very much. Um, probably because of how difficult it is to take a photo of something so small, so far away, as you said. So what kind of, you know, processes were they needing to do in order to get the image back that, um, you know, that we ultimately end up seeing? Yeah, right. So we, we get, uh, yeah, on, on the point, by the way, of the hard drives, I, I love that story because we, we sort of think about, uh, you know, shuttling data around and optical fibers and laser comms and it's, that's when you talk about data that that's big, it's just quicker and easier to get a grad student to take the tapes and, and get a, a flight and go, right? <laughs> By hand, put it into the supercomputer. Um, so very, very old school, archaic. We call that, um, there's, there's, there's hardware, there's software, there's wetware, which are, you know, sort of people who make all of this stuff happen. And then there's sneakerware, which is where we get grad students to, to literally, students. you know, <laughs> students to, to go. Wearing take sneakers, yeah. Um, so we have a... Uh, so the particular processes, yeah, at, at cleaning up the image, uh, reconstructing, reprocessing as best we can. The, perhaps the best way to imagine it is that each, um, so the event horizon is comprised of, of multiple telescopes around the world, and it's um, each gets a uh, an, uh, a single image of the black hole and takes takes many many data, of course, of it. Um, but you're uh, we can't really get a sense of this because our eyes don't work this way. We get a stereoscopic view of something because we, of course, are seeing the same thing from two slightly different points of view, and we kind of get that sense of of 3D as a result. Um, if you were to um, separate our eyes more, um, you you might imagine we can, can improve that kind of um, stereoscopic vision. What we don't get, though, is um, an improvement by looking uh, longer at an object, uh, right? So it doesn't, the, the image quality doesn't continue to build. Uh, we don't capture the phase of the light is another way to, to phrase it. So, so we don't, so the longer we stare at something um, and um, uh, we, do, we don't get an improvement, so there's, there's an issue. But particularly with the phase, if you see something, um, uh, you know, maybe you're standing 10 meters away and you're telling me, I see an object, I think I'm seeing this. I'm, I'm not seeing it any better, right? Because of the information you're passing to me about that distant object. But with telescopes, when you capture the phase of the light, that's literally the way the light waves are bounce, you know, um, um, going up and down as they travel the wavy bit of the light and what phase it's in. Um, you can splice together two points of view from two separate people or telescopes. And you do see it better. You do resolve it as if now you've got two eyes that are separate and you're seeing it in a stereoscopic. So from that point of view, with multiple telescopes, it's the individual pairs telling each other what they're seeing, 
those base, what we call uh, baselines are these, these two different points of view correlated, to use a mathematical term, you do get an improvement. The challenge of that is mind-boggling. So you're trying to, again, the, the key to this is that you're seeing the same light wave bouncing up and down the same phase. You're trying to bring them into phase. Uh, but they're on other sides of the world, they'll have different bits of atmosphere those waves have gone through. Literally, there's just the distance itself is slightly different. So you need to correct for the fact they're on different bits of the earth and the light has taken from this distant quasar uh, feeding black hole slightly longer to get to you. And then there's all the other things, right? The fact that magnetosphere is moving around, sloshing around, causing waves to change. And you're trying to correct for all of that. So it's, it's, you're basically looking through a murky plane of, gap, of, of glass at this object. Because the astronomers involved are brilliant, they could correct for how murky was the thing they were looking through, in this case, the atmosphere and the magnetosphere of the Earth. They could correct literally for the position of where they were on the Earth at the fraction of a second when the light arrived. And the fact that the Earth is spinning also had to be corrected for. The fact there's gravitating objects within our own solar system had to be corrected for. There's observations called pulsars that literally can measure where the moons of Jupiter are in their orbit some other side of the solar system because of the impact on the arrival rate of this light. So this is the level of sophistication. So yeah, while you might end up with a really simple image at the end, which is, you know, a megabyte or whatever size, to get to that point has reduced petabytes of data, you've taken huge amounts of cleaning each step, trying to um, remove the murk from what is the pristine image we think is there. And all the while, of course, you're doing this with only just a few points of view, so to speak. So you're having to use very clever mathematical techniques to, to fill in the dots across that image. You're only getting individual discrete points to make a coherent image. All of it to say is near miraculous. Um, and in fact, we don't have, because there were two supermassive black holes that were looked at, one in, in this distant galaxy, M87, the other in our own Milky Way, which is a little bit smaller, but because it's closer, it's, it's going to be still, um, it's, sorry, it's quite a lot smaller. It's a mi only a few million times the mass of our sun, uh, but because it's closer, it's still eminently um, visible, but you've never seen that image. And that's because the... Um, uh, because it's, it's closer to us, um, the uh, material swirling around was moving too quickly for us to, to get that image in phase. The analogy I've liked for this is if you try to get a picture of, of you know, your kids playing in the backyard and they're running around, you're going to get a blurry image. You're not going to capture the, the, the amazing image of them. And because basically this gas is swirling around and it's too close to us, it's all blurred out for our Milky Way's one. Now we still are reducing and these are very, very clever, you know, data sizes. So I think we will eventually get that image of this, this monster in our own galaxy. But for now, even the supercomputers we have available have, have not been enough to produce that data. So, uh, definitely w watch this space, but, uh, yeah, who knew it turns out taking an image of a fundamentally invisible object is, is tricky. Uh, that's uh, fascinating. Uh, it's incredible. So, Alan, no, no, when we talk with people who have made the shift from astronomy into data science uh, and using data science to solve public policy questions or questions yeah. in, in society, it's no wonder that they say to us, oh, look, the data part is really easy uh, because they're just so used to working with vast, vast data sets, which is fascinating. I'm really interested. So what is the role of AI in the work that you're doing now? And how is AI helping to accelerate some of the, the field of study? AI has been one of the real, one of the changes in astronomy almost as a paradigm that has not been widely discussed in the field. There's always a PhD working on some AI implementation or in a, in a, in a detection pipeline. In other words, tell me AI, what is out there? Am I seeing, how many galaxies am I seeing? What kind of galaxies am I seeing? Um, but I don't think the ramifications of it are well understood. I, I don't think we, we as, a, as a field quite appreciate how disruptive this is going to be. So AI has been used to process the data 
We have this incredible amount of data that arrives from our telescope, the Australian Square Kilometer Array Pathfinder, ASCAP, and the Merchant Whitefield Array, MWA, both of which are in, in Western Australia. These are 1% versions of ultimately the Square Kilometer Array that will see tens of thousands of telescopes spread across Australia, similar numbers across uh, uh, Africa. And, and then we have another world-spanning telescope. The Square Kilometer Array will, will have an, as much data um, pouring in as exists on the internet, give or take, and that will be arriving every day. So how do you, how do you process? How do you, how do you sort through this? Entire internet every day coming in. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot. Um, it could, you know, it could be, to be honest though, the internet, uh, thanks to the internet of things has absolutely blown out the number. So maybe it's the internet three years ago before the, the <laughs> yeah. IoT really killed us on that. But, you know, let's imagine, let's, let's be, let's be conservative here and just say it's, it's, you know, everything on YouTube basically, and it's driving each and every day. Yeah. So now let's try to, to sift through that data. And AI is absolutely critical. There's no, uh, there's no human eyeball will ever look at this data now. We will entirely rely on AI to um, flag interesting objects, to count the known knowns. We, we have a good idea of what galaxies look like, how many you know, their properties, we can begin to classify them and AI will do that job. Uh, it will, we, we hope, uh, also find things that we suspect are out there. So modifications to weird stars or, you know, weird galaxy properties, whatever it might be, exploding stars in particular, you know, Rums, Rumsfeldian style known unknowns. But then the, the bit that really worries me is the unknown unknowns. And this is where there are things that AI will simply not flag that are absolutely earth shattering in their implications. And we will just not see them with the sky, which is recorded, reported to us will appear blank. There's galaxies, there's stars, there's nothing in between. And that's not really the picture, but it's the picture that the AI we design today has allowed us to see tomorrow. It's and interesting I, you say that. that, yeah, because I was talking with my son about this, uh, who's 16, and his simple question back was, what if the AO makes a mistake? Well, it will. I mean, it's, it, it must. It, it's a flawed training set, right? I mean, it's, the, the AI will um, be, uh, it will make mistakes in classification. You know, this galaxy is a spiral or it's an elliptical and human goes in the loop and says, oh, that's not, that's not right. But in a statistical sense, we can get a handle on how good it is and we can try to improve that. The fundamental bit about its mistake is the one that we never discover. That's the worry I have. Um, so how do you make an AI that's general enough to, to, to find these unknowns? And, and as an example, this isn't without Warren. And it's also, to be fair, something that a lot of astronomers worry a lot about. We had a, a wonderful example of a citizen science project on the Zooniverse. This is a website where scientists place their data. Uh, they provide the tools to analyze, often very much just eyeball, you know, tick box classification. Is this a tiger? Is this a lion? Is this a spiral galaxy? Is it an elliptical? And what we're doing, of course, is providing the annotated data set to train an AI against. But we also do have the image and we have opportunities for people to label, you know, weird features. And one such weird feature, uh, fittingly, uh, as, as we approach the Halloween season, looked like a weird green ghost, right? On, literally on the image, there's the galaxies, and then there's this weird green ghost-like thing. And the, uh, the, the citizen scientist, uh, um, a Dutch teacher or Belgian teacher, um, Hanny, uh, recorded this, reported this and flagged it. And we followed it up with, with, um, deeper observations to what confirm it really was there. And it is, it's absolutely beautiful, extended, weird, um, shining distribution of gas glowing brightly from in fact, a reflected, um, burp of a, of a feeding black hole. So absolutely crazy stuff, right? Who, who ever would have seen this thing? And it's, it's called Hanny's, uh, Hanny's thingy or Hanny's foreverp. Which, which I think the Dutch translation is, is thingy or thingy Bob maybe is a better translation. Stingy. So and that's what you can this, Google. Any citizen scientists out there with a telescope wanting to go and find this in the sky can go and Google Hanny's thingy 
Yeah. And uh, it, find the coordinates, point it at that. It'll be there. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> but we would never have had that discovery mm-hmm. if we'd allowed the AI to, to, to filter out and only report on the things that it had determined are real and of interest. And I think that that's an extremely worrisome trend if we don't make the discoveries um well if we don't make the ai sufficiently flexible we will just not make those kinds of of discoveries anymore and i think that's not we're not alone in astronomy um and in fact at least in astronomy the, the stakes are relatively low right if we just don't make that discovery you know well that's sad for humanity but it's not an existential threat um, we do have AI, by the way, that's looking for asteroids. We do have existential threat searches on, but, but the idea is is of such a obvious, profound challenge for all AI-enabled um, searches and, and processes in society, but it's not something we often worry about. We, we rightly speak about the bias in, in AI, and in our sense, we have... Um, Another wonderful example from Zooniverse, in fact, where we asked people to just simply classify is the galaxy spinning one way or the other, clockwise or anticlockwise. Uh, what we wanted to test was the idea if, if um, essentially, where does that spin come from? If, if everything is spinning one way, then that implies the universe is also spinning in that way. Um, and a spinning universe has bad, bad consequences for GR and this time travel is possible. It's, it, it's not a great thing. So we, our expectation going in was that there would be as many things spinning one way as the other. What the scientists reported, however, was that there were slightly more spinning one way than the other. Uh, it was a robust detection. We had extremely good foundational reasons to suspect that that's not true. And instead, there was a bias in our own uh, ability to discern rotation and indeed there is as a well-reported psychological effect so we were, we were able to actually determine through the citizen science the hundreds of thousands of people matching galaxy spin that one was rotating um in that 50 50 chance we'll, we'll pick anti-clockwise as opposed to clockwise with a slight preference and that was enough to bias the whole experiment but because we knew fundamentally knew that the universe could not be rotating and that hence as many galaxies should rotate one way as the other to cancel out such that there's no net rotation um we could correct for that or at least we could investigate when we could see that was a a flawed result that's very rarely in society we ever gonna have as easy uh, a red flag against a bias and of course that rotational information was then immediately fed into ai which would just then be biased and forevermore report an incorrect number of rotating galaxies if we couldn't have spotted it so you know very much a a fun low stakes example for something that worries me tremendously about this adoption of ai and data science it's really in interesting our society more generally yeah that is really interesting because you know this 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 notion of of probing the really sort of simple things um we, you, you talk about the fact that we just kind of, we knew that this could not be the case. We knew that the universe could not be rotating or there couldn't be a bias of rotation in, in any particular direction. Fascinating if you discovered that it was true. Um, but of course, you know, like then there are other examples where, you know, I think that we, we had a strong intuition, let's say, that the universe couldn't have a preference for, you know, one particular configuration over another. And there's a very famous result, um, you know, in recent decades that, uh, demonstrated that, you know, on a on a fundamental sort of at the at the level of particle physics, um, there are processes that have a preference for handedness uh, oh, as yes, a particular. Yep. Um, you know, I, perhaps you can tell me what the the particular interaction is that um, that produces this result. But the universe really does care, um, in some sense, about uh, what they call chirality, um, yep. and so I, you know, like this. I suppose there's always the opportunity for the universe to surprise you. Um, you know, with those sort of fundamental results. Yeah, the, 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 look, there, there certainly is. And I, and I want to ensure that I don't do a disservice to the Zooniverse team. Uh, they were not dogmatic. I, I think it's fair to say on the balance of probabilities is the fundamentally physics-breaking outcome of a rotating universe versus humans being slightly biased in their <laughs> psychology. I think given the balance of probabilities, one would be looked at first. Um, and I think that's how all all... Uh, scientific inquiry um, is undertaken by the you know the chirality left-handedness right-handedness for example um, as well as CP violation there's, there's many other instances of, of, of preferences 
um, that the you might it, it's just appropriate that you look to the easiest explanations first. You you check the data, you check the um, measurements. You don't throw out foundational principles because of the observation. If the observation continues to be checked and the discrepancy remains, as was the case with the accelerating universe, the fact that our universe was bigger than we had anticipated and distant exploding stars were fainter. This is a, a, a result that uh, Brian Schmidt, Australia's uh, Nobel laureate, co-shared the, the Nobel Prize in physics for. Um, this is, you know, we got to that point, that enormous earth shattering again to use that phrase it's bigger than that though it's potentially universe shattering in fact uh, my, my good friend katie mack wrote a wonderful book um and of everything explaining exactly how this dark energy could rip apart the universe it's, it's in fact it's almost certain that it will eventually cause it cause us to end at least in a, in a whimper if not a, a big rip as we all all get spread out and fade away um that this this dark energy this accelerating universe um that it causes was outrageous in this implication. You would never have jumped to that conclusion. You would have checked, every, as they did, check everything else in the pipeline first. It was only the fact that there were so many other little weird telltales and the data from other data sets, other kinds of observation, other kind of experimentation, that we were more receptive to that transformative um, conclusion. And I think that, again, we all have an instinctive... Um, approach to that in, in our work, in our data science, where we, you know, if you see something that is fundamentally challenging about consumer behavior or whatever the reports for a, a process in your plant, something you just intuitively know is, you know, well, if I have to tell someone else that, if I have to tell the C-suite that this, you know, is, 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 come, is, is occurring and they're going to be blown away by the implication and it's going to be absolutely enormous in its what it means for a business, I'm probably going to check that that's true, right? I'm going to go through every other test first before I land on the most extraordinary outcome. And I think that's, um, we, we do that because we're sensible, right? There's another way of phrasing it. It's just, you're just going to check. And, and that's what we do in, in science. Um, the, the tricky thing, however, is uh, something called positive uh, uh, bias in the sense that we, we will check only for as long, we'll check for bugs, we'll check for issues in the equipment, only for as long until we get the right answer. Uh, one right answer uh, is, is how fast the universe is expanding. We have a good idea. We think what it is. And if you look at all the observations, it's really suspicious. They, they seem to agree way, way better than the error should indicate, meaning we think that astronomers are being um, um, uh, biased in their analysis. In other words, they stop trying to find the bugs when they get the right answer to prevent that there is a new technique, uh, which I think everyone in data science should adopt, uh, which is where we um, uh, add an extra random number, essentially, right at the start of the process. No one knows except the team lead, and they, they write that number down and they fold it away and they, they hide it carefully because you, you need to remove this random number eventually. And you do the entire pipeline, you do the entire production, analysis. You even write the paper, by the way, based on that. And then at the very, very end, just before you hit submit, you all pledge to do this. You open the envelope. There's the random number. You put that in. You, you remove that essentially from your calculation. And wherever the data lands, whatever that final number in this instance of the expanding universe, that's the one you roll with and publish. Well, and then you will go to extraordinary lengths to fix every bug without bias. You will go to extraordinary lengths to find all the issues in your data because you don't have the comfort of knowing you've landed on the right answer until the very end. That's critical when we do these kinds of data size challenges because our, the, the, uh, that selection effect that we only fix until we get, you know, air quotes, the right answer, it means that there could be any number of issues that you just simply don't investigate because, well, why should you? It's worked. And that's so insidious. Uh, and, and I think it's something we all need to be very careful as, as we move to ever more black box systems in particular uh, with AI. Uh, that, that's another thing that really greatly worries me about this, this future, that we won't recognize those challenge points until it's too late. 
And so it's interesting as you speak about that, you've painted a fantastic and beautiful image of how um, discovery is uh, unraveled and how, you know, when you, when you are, as a data scientist, bringing these discoveries to light, how important your process is and, and being aware of um, all of the considerations as you, as, you, as you reinforce that discovery. But I'm curious about the quality of the question. You've got this fabulous TED Talk. I loved it. It was really uh, brought it to life in a very fun way. So can you talk a little bit about the value of asking simple questions in this field? Yeah, yeah. This is the, the, the power of, of simple questions. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that, that, that TED Talk, actually. Uh, this was... So the, the, the nature of that talk really uh, boils down to the, the challenge of a complex universe in, in both capital U, but, but even just, just our, you know, whatever our, our particular instance, our data problem is. And the, the, that without asking a simple question of the data, you can't have any confidence in the, the results or even the, the issues you might, might uncover. There's no guiding principle to allow you to, to wade through a, a complex changing scenario. The, the examples I use in that, that TED Talk the, the idea, Einstein's insights about fundamental experiences of acceleration and gravity being one and the same. I can feel my hand being weighed down by the gravity. I can, I can go in an elevator and, and I feel a change in literally gravity as I experience it. I get heavier as, I, as the elevator goes up. I feel lighter as I drop. How would you know if you were in an elevator or rather, you know, had been magicked into space, free floating, except rockets were attached to the bottom or blasting you up with exactly one G acceleration and fundamentally you can't. It's 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 the perfect analogy, and he used that simple question, that simple ideal principle, and the confidence it gave him as a guiding principle to ultimately develop general relativity, which which shattered our perception of space and time. It could be no no less than the literal redefining of our experience as as thinking beings. So you could never have gotten to that point without the simplicity of the question to give you confidence and intuition about a complex situation. Um, I think that the, um, I, I, and I think that's particularly salient when we talk to data science where we could be so creative and so um, clever with the question we ask. Imagine how many parameters I could throw. Imagine how complex you know, regression I could do on this day. Oh, wonderful. And you get an answer. And is it right? I don't know. But there, you know, look at all these parameters I've introduced. And you think, Based on what? Like, what, what is you you when you have all the data in the world, and we quite literally almost now do to that degree, especially with the Internet of Things revolution. Without asking a simple question of it, how can you have any confidence in the answer you get back? And and worse yet, how can you possibly gain a deeper insight into the? processes that lie beneath that data, the model, the underlying nature of the thing you were asking of. So I think that that was the, what I was trying to capture in that, that talk. I probably should revisit this actually, um, because I, I've, I've, because quite a few years ago and I've, I've, I've asked some bad questions in the ever since. I think so I can we, make it a personal, more personal yeah, journey. I think we do answer bad questions. We do try to pose bad questions, don't we? Because we somehow feel or believe that data can answer them all for us and yet it's the discipline of being able to answer ask that simple question um which you've described so incredibly uh, i think you know in our workout and we do a lot of that with people helping to refine the question helping to really boil it down to its simplest form so that we can support um the uh, discovery hmm. uh, for yeah. that those challenge of course can be taking you know, what's a, a qualitative question, um, you know, and you tell the difference between gravity and acceleration or, you know, why is it that the sun shines and, and all of these various questions that are of a qualitative nature and then, you know, unpack them, you know, unpack them in a sort of recursive and, and, and uh, fractal way down to the kind of quantitative 
uh, you know, measures like, well, you know, what, what, what does curvature have to do with the, the rate of acceleration, uh, you know, of a body in, in empty space? And, um, you know, well, what, what is the, the energy barrier that prevents, um, you know, hydrogen nuclei from actually fusing together and, and, you know, sort of these things naturally give rise to theories that are, as you say, Alan, you know, just totally mind bending, general relativity, quantum mechanics, um, yeah. all this sort of stuff. And it's, it's just fascinating. This, there, there just seems to be such a mystery in, um, in that initial kernel of a question and how you can develop, you know, a skill or an intuition for that. Um, I think you probably have, I mean, you probably have developed quite an intuition for that, you know, over your, um, over your career. Um, how would you, like, how do you t teach people? How do you, how do you, you know, pass that skill on to people to, to find that, that kernel of a question and drive right yeah. at it, you know? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, with, with difficulty, because I, I don't think I am that, that good at it, but I, you know, I've gotten better. Let's put it that way. I think the, uh, it's one of the, one of the questions just, to, uh, to bring it back to earth a little bit that I used actually in that TED talk was a young girl from Narajan asked me, um, if the sun is so hot, why is space so cold? And the sign of a good question, a simple question, and, and his ramifications are profound, and I, I talk about that in, in the talk. Um, but the idea, you can intuitively understand you've just heard a good question when you go, ah, uh, ah. Uh, That's uh, a good question. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you've got multiple stages of realization of how <laughs> profound that question is. <laughs> and, a, 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 and a simple question is not easy to phrase. It's not easy to formulate. I don't want to, to confuse the two terms. The challenge and something we, we, we try to do in, in my physics class in particular, I, I have the joy of teaching physics 101 at Swinburne and you get hundreds of, of students in it. The, it is to empower them to value their own physical intuition, to understand a problem and to turn it around in their head and look at it from different angles and ask a simple question of it. Uh, it can be something as trivial as the idea of, you know, a ball flying, flying up and you can begin to imagine how does it, how does it move? And you sort of have a picture in your mind of how it should be sort of moving. We've seen many, you know, balls flying in, in the past and, you know, very quickly you can begin to, um, use then detailed mathematical equations. And if the answer from the maths is telling you, oh, it's, it should go um, up forever as opposed to come back down, chances are you've, you've got a negative sign wrong somewhere, right? Like it should eventually be coming back down. And you know that's true. So I think that there are instances where the physical picture is, and our intuition and our understanding of a scenario of a model is devalued against a technical capability. And the problem with that is you can always make mistakes with your calculations, with your coding, with your AI. Um, but without that physical picture formulated by the simple act of a question, a hypothesis, you can, you, you will go awry. You will just not be able to, to determine that the mistake was there. So I think that that's something it's very hard to teach. Um, but I think that there's, when I've looked at senior leadership in uh, companies and research teams in business politics in any field where there's a synthesis of of information sources there's a distillation to an action to some kind of procedural action I, I've noted that there's the similarity appears to be that they are able to evaluate some kind of real world model in mind. They, they do seem to have a capability to assess the data and what's being told to them against some kind of a hypothetical scenario in their mind, their model, and can very quickly jump to the right answer, certainly in a, in a qualitative sense. I mean, they're not going to quantitatively say it's at three decimal places, but they're going to get a right answer more often than not and make a right call on, a, on an action to follow because of that intuition and the intuition is revealing that they have a very sophisticated model now, which has been built up, I suspect, over the years of their career to, to have the senior leadership. And it's, and it's often, uh, and just to speak to my own personal experience, when I help my students, particularly my PhD students, they're much smarter than I am. They're much more capable and talented than I am. The reason I can help them 
is because I've got a better picture in my mind built up over many mistakes and hard-worn lessons. And then I can intuit that they've perhaps gone wrong at this point. And I can also, through my hard-won experience, suspect that where they've gone wrong is this step because I've gone wrong there so many more times as well. So those are the kinds of things that experience gives you. And it's that marriage of the technical capability, but with that uh, hard-won developed model or, or idea, intuition in mind that experience gives you that you can do the best work when you combine the two. Substitute for hard work, eh? It's really not. I mean, some, some geniuses, sure. But look, Einstein took 10 years to do GR, right? So really? it's not like sure. even Einstein jumped quickly to the end. No, um, so look, yeah. Uh, yeah, experience counts. It really does. That's a good lesson. Um, hey, um, Alan, you've got a, you're, you're founder of a, and a really exciting sounding startup, um, mm. M-Detect. Yeah, I assume that the M in M-Detect stands for muon. Is that right? Yeah, that was that was my my clever marketing ploy. Yes, so this is a a um, uh, spin out from from my work. In fact, my my uh, Shanti uh, Krishna, my student at the time, who's one of my co founders in this company, uh, we were developing uh, muon detectors. These are these are particles um, that are produced as high energy cosmic rays from feeding black holes and exploding stars come crashing into our atmosphere produce these essentially heavier cousins of, of electrons and they go in turn slamming through up to kilometers of rock. Uh, we were building a cheap detector because these, these muons essentially are blinding our search for the dark matter. Just to close the circle on that, uh, we have a detector going into the bottom of a gold mine to try to escape these cosmic rays. Uh, a program led, a sa- uh, the experiment called Sabre led by Elisabetta Barbario of Unimelp. Um, but these muons still managed to penetrate through all that rock, vastly reduced numbers, but still. So we were building a new kind of cheap detector to essentially get in the way to let us know when a, uh, you know, one of these showers are coming through. And we would stop the data collection at that point for the dark matter experiment. And that's really the end of the story, right? From a scientific point of view. Because it's science, we have no budget. So we were basically building a super cheap commodity-based muon detector. By the end of Shanti's PhD, we realized we'd done something quite novel in that regard. It was we we had a, a wonderfully cheap and capable and hard uh, in a sort of um, survivability sense, hardened, um, robust detector. And by using those particles to to shine through material, so to speak, you can take an X-ray like image of the rock or any uh, object that it's passed through. Uh, if there's uh, a denser ore body. For example, you will see a shadow as more particles are absorbed than you suspect. Or if there is an air gap opening up or a clay pod that's stuck in the middle of your ore body, uh, you'll see more muons uh, than expected. So you'll see a hot spot. So the analogy with the X-ray is perfect where we actually see the bone because of the, the X-rays being absorbed and the break is revealed because there's now a hot spot. They, we inverted the colors, by the way. The white is actually shadow in the X-ray sense. So... Um, the analogy continues, though, because if because these are so cheap, you can place multiple of these detectors uh, underground, and now you get multiple points of view of the object of interest, and you can do a CAT scan. So now you get a 3D image of the underground region, and these muons can travel through hundreds of meters of rock. So this is a perfect distillation of the technology that came from the research, AI, very sophisticated AI to do that inversion to get the 3D picture. And then, of course... Because it's a startup, I get to just go to fundraising. And I, you know, in fact, we just very successfully um, had an AMGC commercialization grant. Uh, for oh, congratulations. It. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was, that's, that was, that's pretty big. Yeah. Of we all the grants I've ever won in my of life, sitting as the industry partner has you know, never felt sweeter. And I think that that's a, to scale up with our partners at Oz Minerals and LG Industries, the production of these detectors and ultimately testing in a tailored, tailings storage. Uh, facility that Oz Minerals have. So to actually see through these embankments of you know, tens of meters high barriers for, you know, to keep this this output of the mines safely stored away. And uh, muons offer a unique ability to, to look through all that material and assess its stability. So we have this, um, you know, yet another opportunity uh, for my career going from, you know, an astronomer wondering about the sky to uh, a cosmologist worrying about the universe, to creating simulated universes and supercomputers, 
and now using particles from the sky combined with the supercomputer piece of knowledge to actually begin to worry about far more earthly concerns. And it's thrilling. I have to say, I, lo- I love the challenge. I can see why people get a, um, get that, that startup bug. It is, there's a, is an extraordinary act of creation and creative process in that. Um, and I think as scientists as multidisciplinary jack of all trades, where we know a little bit about a lot are quite well placed to enter that world. It's not for every scientist, I suspect, but I think I would like to see far more scientists uh, go on that translation journey and tr- and try to become a founder as well. That would be wonderful. And thank you so much, Alan. What a fascinating conversation today. I really appreciate your time and we will be without question following you and um, supporting MDetect and all the work that you do. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adder on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, the famous and wonderful Alan Duffy, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.